This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we have the great privilege of speaking with the senior partner, Chairman Cyril. I'm not exactly sure what, what title you use, but the distinguished uh, lawyer based in Mumbai, Cyril Schroff, who's the managing partner of the well-known Cyril Amarshan Mangaldas Law Firm, often referred to just by the initials CAM, CAM. Cyril, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, John. Let's begin by talking a little bit uh, about India. I mean, just in general terms, everybody's talking about India. We hear so much that this is India's time, maybe India's century, most populous country on earth, incredible GDP growth rate approaching 7%, graduate 5 million software engineers a year, English language speaking, a democracy, it goes on and on. All these uh, attributes, positive attributes associated with India. Is there a re is this a reality? Is this is do you see it the same way, Cyril? Is this going to be India's century? Whether it's a India's century or not, uh, time will tell. But it is certainly, I think, uh, India's decade, and I think there is great momentum uh, at this point of time for the, all the reasons that you mentioned. And I also like to sort of characterize it as arising from the four Ds, uh, which are uh, democracy. We are a genuine democracy. Uh, our demography, and uh, you mentioned we are the uh, most populous uh, nation on earth. And I think also with the additional fact that uh, the median age is 28, so it's a young population. Uh, and if data is the new oil, clearly that makes it one of the most uh, uh, prosperous sort of uh, hunting grounds for, for the economy. Uh, and lastly, I think it's just uh, a demand arising from the population. Um, and uh, coupled with, I mean, there's an overarching uh, rule of law framework, which I think clearly gives uh, it the uh, kind of liberal values that one would respect in the Western world. And, and, and I can go on and on, but uh, just to supplement what you said, I think this uh, kind of reinforces, and it's a complex world today uh, with uh, whatever is happening with China. I think that did, that's resulted in advantage India. Uh, there was a cover story of The Economist a few months back on India being America's new best friend. Yeah. And I think all of that is true. Uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend it kind of yes that's how some people look at it let's go back for a minute to the point you make about data you know we hear about the indian stack uh i'm not sure i fully understand what that is but i understand that there's some very comprehensive uh database and data infrastructure where the government has information and all citizens and citizens have uh, access to information about them and their benefits maybe you could tell us just briefly about that so India took a very um, uh, interesting approach towards uh, digital innovation. And I think it's a combination of both the state and the public sector on one hand uh, and the private sector. So I think the state provided the underpinnings by creating what you refer to as the India stack, which has many kind of sub-elements to it, one of which is... Uh, the uh, unique identity scheme, UID. Uh, in India, it's called Aadhaar. So every Indian has uh, a unique identity. 
uh, a digital identity and uh, that has been transformational because it has provided a digital identity point uh, for all state benefits uh, opening a bank account you know there are so many apps now you can literally open a bank account before we finish this call uh, on your phone uh as well so that uh, has created and there are other elements to it of how a bank account is open uh so after that and this is all provided free to the citizens uh so that even though the state has made a huge investment uh there is no uh, there is no fee for this so then this has enabled them for creation by the private sector of innovation on top of it so you would have heard uh, about many sort of payment apps uh digital mm. transactions e-commerce all of that has been built on top of this and when your biggest item of capital expenditure is provided by the state free you can literally set the economy on fire and india has well and truly embraced um, the fourth industrial revolution thanks to all of this well has has the justice system similarly been digitized do you have a similarly sophisticated IT system and and a digital system for uh you know keeping track and and litigating cases and filings and having access to the status of cases online so short answer is no but that being said i think our uh, uh, our court system which is overwhelmed by the sheer number of cases uh has embraced technology a lot so during the pandemic uh we had a lot of uh, e hearings and virtual hearings uh as well so uh, we were i think india was one of the uh, most uh, uh, prolific users of uh, of video conferencing and uh, and e hearings but um, uh, it would be uh, an overstatement to say that we have ex- uh, we have uh, embraced e courts that being said i think there are a lot of initiatives at this point of time led by the chief justice of the supreme court to do precisely what you just mentioned in terms of uh bringing in uh technology as a big part of the justice system and i think it will have two parts to it one is uh i think kind of reforming the back end and the administrative services where a lot of the delays actually occur and secondly while this is early days uh at some point at least for certain types of cases i think we will use uh, ai for odr it may land up being for small value cases but they account for a lot of cases whether it's traffic offenses or payment offenses or uh, you know e-commerce disputes or uh, small securities market uh, you know claims uh, so all of these might take out a big chunk numerically uh, from the roster and leave the court with more time to uh, deal with some of the more complex cases so it's kind of work in progress short answer i mean we hear uh you know people who aren't really familiar with india and the justice system there the one thing that people hear is that there's an incredible backlog of cases that it's you know it's described in dickensian terms that lawsuits are inherited they go from generation to generation and there may be you know tens of millions of cases in backlogs in courts i mean to what extent is that description a reality uh, to what extent is it represent a real exaggeration so the statement while it's not untrue uh, it's not complete so one of our judges uh, supreme court judges who was 
previously in the Mumbai High Court, uh, recently said that, you know, it's not a problem really of a docket explosion only. It is also about docket exclusion. So what that means is that uh, not only is there a very vast number of cases, I mean, they run into millions, but some of the important cases get left out. And I think that is where the real problem is. Uh, now, from my experience, if there's any kind of major international cross-border dispute, it always finds its way to a quick resolution. So let's leave that aside, but let's just talk about Indian litigants. It is indeed uh, a problem uh, of the sheer volume uh, running into millions, and we have experimented with many solutions, uh, appointing more judges. Uh, we've also uh, taken a stab at tribunalization of a number of special topics, but they've also, like, for example, debt recovery claims, tax claims, uh, even uh, in some sense our insolvency processes and insolvency code and as well. So one of the sort of knee-jerk reactions to every big problem of a docket explosion is let's create a tribunal uh, and because that will create specialization as well. So that has had partial success, but eventually just a tsunami of cases overwhelms. So, you know, we are 1.4 billion people and we are, as, uh, as, a, as a leading thinker once said, we are the argumentative Indian. <laughs> I, I have read that um, there are various types of public interest cases that people can bring. I forget what the term is, but the standing, uh, what we would call standing requirements for someone to bring a bring a case are are very low that people can you know there there's access to the court to put in issue public policy matters uh, where somebody you would think in most countries well this person doesn't really have standing to challenge this why are they bringing this claim i think that's a great question john and uh, let's do a kind of an india us comparison okay the supreme court of india let me start from there and the indian supreme court are chalk and cheese. Uh, both are the most powerful courts in the world, but for the reasons which I will just uh, explain, I think the Indian court, is, uh, Indian Supreme Court, is probably the most powerful court in the Supreme Court uh, in the world. And why is that? Uh, firstly, uh, it is not just a court of appeal; uh, it is also a court of original jurisdiction where fundamental rights are involved. So if if a fundamental right under the constitution is breached, you can bring a case directly to the Supreme Court. That's uh, And you don't have to go through the entire uh, process of filing a case in the lower court and taking it up. So that's uh, that's one difference. Secondly, the for example, the US Supreme Court sits as a unified bench of nine. We sit in divided benches of two each. And on any given day, uh, usually Mondays and Fridays, they hear all sorts of appeals uh, from the, the from the low, the uh, sort of lower judiciary, which could include a rent claim or some somebody complaining that they should have got a promotion. It could be where the next cricket match should be held or not held uh, about the pollution and the fuel that you use in the car. And so it's a it's a, such a broad jurisdiction that any claim or any kind of wrong, even a policy wrong, can somehow find its way into uh, in, in in front of the Supreme Court. And Monday and Friday are these, and they've been kind of jokingly called the fish market days, is when, when all of this happens, where a, where a judge 
might probably be hearing anywhere between or a bench might be hearing anywhere between 150 to 200 cases on that day because that's a supreme court judge you're talking about it's a supreme court judge that's amazing because our u.s supreme court i think only hears like 80 cases the whole year yeah so this is what happens on every uh, uh, every monday and friday and tuesday to thursday is where they have a longer longer hearing but even that's kind of voluminous so uh, and then let me come to the question of locust and die so we have a very low threshold of uh, of locust and die and it started uh, about two and a half decades ago and they used to be called postcard justice where uh, in the time of the uh, uh, of the emergency in the mid 70s uh, prisoners uh, had written uh, had sort of invoked habeas corpus by writing on a postcard and sending it to the chief justice and that was felt to be enough for assuming jurisdiction and since then it has uh, evolved very broadly uh if there it it uh, i think the basic view of the supreme court is it doesn't matter what your locus is so long as there is a wrong that has been done they will intervene to write it and i think that has been one of the most uh, it has actually been one of the most endearing uh, aspects of our, of our judiciary which makes it really the last uh, resort for a citizen but I mean, as as you describe it, Cyril, you one can see how the system would get overwhelmed. That's true. So it's, it, I mean, that's the flip side of it, and that is precisely what has kind of happened in terms of um, just the sheer volume. But this is not the main uh, reason why the, the the courts are clogged. I think the courts are clogged simply because there is a big mismatch between the infrastructure and the judicial strength that is required as compared to the amount of cases that get filed on a variety of, of topics. It's a, it's a simple demand supply and infrastructure issue. And then there is a culture issue. So recently, about two weeks ago, our Supreme Court uh, referred to something called Tariq Pe Tariq, which is which is, it's a Hindi word borrowed from a movie. But what it means is uh, the only thing that happens in a court is matters get injured. Tariq, tariq means date. So there is a kind of a, almost... A, a cynical uh, joke in society that the only thing that happens in court is there are returns. And that is a reflection of uh, the culture of, uh, of how courts work. Now, he wants to fix that by, by because he, in that same speech, the Chief Justice admonished the bar that he's going to put an end to this adjournment or Tariq Pe Tariq culture. Mm. Well, tell us about the judges who uh, have the fingers in the dikes of this uh, flood of litigation. Uh, what, can you tell us generally who they are, what their backgrounds are? Usually judges are uh, former lawyers who have become judges. We don't have a separate career path in our country for, for judges like they do, for example, in the continent in Europe. I mean, do you have a separate career path? What are the backgrounds of judges generally? So everybody has to be a lawyer to, uh, as a kind of base qualification, but we do have a judicial academy. Uh, from which recruitment does happen in the lower judiciary. Uh, but, uh, but, but to the higher judiciary, they're normally appointed from the bar after a certain number of uh, years of experience and reputation. By and large, the judges in the Supreme Court are elevated from the high court, but there have been many exceptions made where there are direct elevations of exceptional lawyers uh, to the Supreme Court. So that does happen once in a while. But, but overall, I think it is basically from the bar that uh, the, you travel to the bench. 
uh, as well and uh, my my view as a uh, uh, not only as a firm that has been around for 100 years but uh, start even before uh, india became independent but even myself as a practitioner for and i started life as a litigator is that we actually have some of the finest judges intellectually uh, we they would be on par with uh, you know any uh, any justice system uh, in the world sometimes even stronger um, but the, the problems are different namely the overwhelming nature of the justice system now recently about a month and a half ago we had a delegation uh, for, of about 11 judges from the us judiciary some from hawaii california and new york who came to india they actually visited our offices and we had a seminar i had send you some of the uh, uh, deliberations there they were they came as part of a uh, delegation led by an indian university and they were amazed at some of the stuff that our uh, that our judiciary has been doing they were amazed at the core liberal values they were amazed at Uh, and how much similarity there was in terms of thinking and in terms of respect of kind of human rights constitutional rights as well so from a uh, from a quality of judicial and intellectual thinking we are right up there as amongst the most uh, advanced judiciaries in the world in fact we have even gone beyond in terms of administrative law i think we have gone even beyond uh, the us uh, and the uk on many occasions as well so i think i would give our uh, even though it kind of i might maybe biased in my own favor i would give full marks to our judiciary from a quality and a sense of justice point of view where we score low, low marks is what you identified is it just takes too long yeah um do what's it like from the standpoint of a, a litigator who does civil cases say in mumbai Uh, I know you do you litigate all over the world you have relationships with law firms all over the world you have clients who get into disputes all over the world so I know you have some visibility into what litigation practice is like in the UK and the US and elsewhere how is it different for a litigator uh, who does business cases in Mumbai than elsewhere is there when a case is filed whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant Do you start preparing for trial? Is there an expectation that this is going to go to trial, or is the expectations probably not going to go to trial? But so we're going to do, we proceed in a different path. How is it different? So in theory, it's similar to uh, the UK or the uh, or even the US system. But the the cynical side of me would say that not in all cases do we prepare for the trial. What we do prepare for and focus a lot of attention on is interim relief. just because of the delay in the system interim relief just sticks around for a long time so the interim relief then becomes the basis on which uh, the future of the case will evolve so you're you're talking you're talking about for example a preliminary injunction or some type of freezing order or attachment so what what we would call a uh, we would call preliminary relief in the US yes exactly so the the the, the power equation between the litigation uh, litigants really gets resolved at that stage simply because of everything that we just mentioned do we prepare the evidence for the trial and all uh, and you know facing a final hearing we would do that in in rare cases and what's actually happened on important commercial cases is there has been a big drift towards arbitration both in india as well as international arbitration simply because you know that you can't afford 
to have uh, a long delay in many commercial cases by taking them through the court system. Having said that, in my experience on uh, on some of the uh, very important uh, commercial disputes which even went through the court system, if there is an interest of, uh, there is a point of, uh, of public interest or international reputation that is involved, somehow for a determined litigant, we found a way to get these cases resolved very quickly. Uh, you mentioned arbitration. Uh, when two significant, substantial Indian companies enter into a contract, if they're well advised, will they typically agree to arbitration to resolve any disputes arising out of the contract because they don't want to be in the Indian court system? And if they do agree to arbitrations, they're typically in India or Singapore or the UK or elsewhere. I know Indian businesses tend to be heavy users of the arbitration system in Singapore uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and I gather uh, arbitration within India is gathering is gaining steam and momentum as well. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, arbitration has had a bit of a slow start, simply because the initial years and maybe the initial decades had a very high level of judicial interference in uh, in arbitration, which basically created even more delays and did not bring finality. So they did not really respect party autonomy. But that has changed, I would say, in the last five to seven years with some leading judgments as well as some critical amendments to our arbitration law. And as I look at it today, uh, many of the fatal flaws in the arbitration system have been mitigated to a large extent. As a practical matter, what I see happening is maybe out of 10 cases that go to between cross-border parties, uh, a lot of them go to Singapore or ICC. Uh, and and a bit, there are other options as well, but these two seem to be the most popular. There is an Indian option as well, the MCIA, which is, which is a relatively new creation. It is called Mumbai Court of International Arbitration. So it is, it is picking up. It's a, it's a bit behind in the queue, but it is catching up. And um, even more recently, we are seeing uh, institutions such as in financial. India has a financial center called IFSCA or Gift City. It is promoting itself also, just like Dubai, as a center for international arbitration. So lots of work going on in terms of boosting our credentials on international arbitration. But as of now, uh, Singapore, I think, would be the most popular. And ICC uh, for bigger cases. Your firm, I know, has a has an office in Singapore, I believe, as, as do many of the large Indian firms. Yes. Uh, there are only two. Okay. All right. What What, what is the uh, background to that? Why, why has Singapore become a preferred venue for resolution of disputes for Indian companies? Uh, that's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do, do with how uh, Singapore Inc. and particularly the SIAC has structured and marketed itself and has been on a constant journey of self-improvement. They take feedback. I must disclose that I'm on the board of uh, directors of uh, SIAC. But that aside, I mean, just a recent joining. I think uh, what I have seen is that they are very responsive. They are very uh, conscious about their reputation uh, and uh, have created a number of improvements in order to improve their efficiency. Plus, that being said, 
Singapore is so convenient. It's uh, just two and a half hours ahead from a time zone point of view. There are so many flights over there. You have access to uh, excellent professional services uh, as well, and you could kind of fly in barristers from uh, from any jurisdiction uh, in the world uh, as well. So uh, it, I think it has got the right ingredients or factors to make it into a kind of a blockbuster uh, arbitration venue. In Mumbai there, you're very close to another burgeoning economy in the UAE, yeah. uh, where I know there's a very large Indian community. You also have the uh, free zones and the courts and arbitration centers in the DIFC in Dubai and the ADGM in Abu Dhabi. Do you see a lot of legal work arising from relationships between Indian companies and lawyers and the same in the UAE? Absolutely. Uh, what we're seeing just now from the UAE is uh, because of the sheer amount of capital that they are uh, sitting on, is that there is a lot of uh, investment flows inward uh, into India. There is, of course, business going out as well, but uh, for various reasons, just geopolitical proximity, sort of India has managed the relationship with the Islamic world very well, uh, and uh, just the sheer business friendly atmosphere in UAE, as well as the fact that there is a great uh, proportion of the diaspora in the Middle East that has Indian origin. So all of that has combined and has created a kind of a, a, a very successful zone of business between UAE and India, and it's only going upwards. Uh, we have now a, a comprehensive economic cooperation agreement or a SIPA uh, with the UAE as well. There is also a broader theme of the Middle East, including Saudi, but I won't get into that. I think UAE continues to be uh, one of the most strategic partnerships for India. I mean, if you're advising a, uh, let's just say, a sovereign wealth fund in the UAE that's making a big investment in India, um, I mean, how, what advice would you give on dispute resolution and choice of law? Or is that just a matter of who has the negotiating leverage to get their own law governing the agreement and, and the forum, their home forum? So I think you, you, you touch upon a sensitive issue. So our, our recent experience on some of the investments uh, that we got from the region has been that uh, the Indian parties were kind of arm twisted to adopt a local uh, local jurisdiction of local law as well as local dispute resolution. But otherwise, in, in some maybe two out of 10 cases, uh, we've seen London, English law and, uh, and London as well. We haven't seen so much of Singapore. I think Singapore is seen as a rival uh, and it's very hard for uh, an outcome uh, with a UAE uh, business to see to land up with uh, with Singapore, but we have seen uh, in a few of our transactions, mostly the, the UAE region itself, but uh, sometimes also uh, sometimes London. I mean, personally, I think that whole part of the world, from Riyadh to Singapore, including the UAE in India, is the most exciting, energetic part of the uh, of the earth right now. No, you're absolutely right. And John, you and I spoke about it uh, when we met in uh, Mumbai and New York. I think it's all happening here uh, in this region, and for the same reasons, uh, for same reasons that I mentioned in the uh, in the early part of this conversation, the population, uh, the young population, 
the unexploited uh, opportunities that lie ahead and this region has kind of also leapfrog because of technology they kind of missed the uh, the last industrial revolution but they've caught up ahead uh, of the new one and at the same time also um, i don't know what's happening with the west but i mean the west is having too many problems whether it's geopolitical whether it's social as well and they're kind of missing the plot a bit uh, in terms of what's really happening uh, in the world so if i as a young person and if i had a choice on where i would like to be born it would be in this zone that you mentioned mm. people sometimes ask me what are the growing areas of disputes uh, in the us where are we seeing growth in the litigation and i i recently have been saying two things first climate related claims which seem to permeate every type of subject matter of dispute whether it's insurance or real estate or um you know even technology uh and energy and corporate governance and securities disclosure issues relating to climate risk that's one clear area another area is everything relating to data i mean you referred to data as the new oil but it's also incredible source of disputes whether it's generative ai can you use copyrighted material to train ai generative ai programs uh to data breach claims to privacy claims to write a publicity claims everything related to data i would tell people that those are the two growth areas i see what would you say in india if someone asked you what are the really growth areas of disputes in the and i'm focusing on business the business world i would have the same answer uh but they are probably a little behind in uh, in terms of just the volumes that compares to uh, your market uh, i would also add corporate governance disputes uh and corporate governance disputes which have sort of you know whether it's shareholder matters or private equity disputes and governance situations uh which have gone wrong now uh, let's take both uh, climate as well as technology uh for a climate litigation we haven't seen big tort actions uh, being brought because we, we generally don't see big tort claims being brought in our courts uh, on anything but i think we are sitting on the threshold of a revolution uh, in india why is that so uh firstly our corporate law uh, recognizes uh, one of the first uh, corporate laws in the world which recognized stakeholder governance where uh, we moved away from the theory that the, the responsibility of corporation is only to serve its shareholders but we went further statutorily to say that there is a responsibility and duty owed also to the environment and the community then the supreme court intervened uh, uh, interpreted it subsequently to say no no there's no there's no hierarchy in this all three are on a par so there is a the stakeholder model of governance has now which is statutory has also got judicial sanction from the supreme court so what's the missing link uh, the missing link still is that we still don't have class actions and we don't have a plaintiff bar the class action point has also been dealt with in our companies act there section 245 which allows the bringing of a, a a class action on anything including this so i believe that we are just one judicial innovation away from a floodgate of climate litigation which would be brought within the realm of corporate law and anyway it's a corporation that uh corporate claims for climate litigation in addition going back to something we discussed in the earlier part of the call is uh, the uh public interest litigation so 
it would be quite easy for uh, a, a, a citizen or even a child or anybody who claims to have uh, be affected by uh, uh, by a climate uh, you know wrong to bring a claim uh, either directly or derivatively into our uh, you know into our court system on the ground of uh, a public wrong so i think that's and and that has been that has happened our supreme court has been fairly prolific uh, in terms of intervening on environmental matters for example many years ago the supreme court forced the use of environmentally uh, environmentally friendly fuels into the sort of automotive system of delhi so our courts do get involved so that's i think climate uh let me now talk of technology so one of the biggest um, areas of judicial in, uh, innovation has been how our supreme court read the right to privacy as part of the right to life which is a constitutionally guaranteed right uh, in a very famous judgment uh, which was delivered uh, about 7 8 years ago and that then led to the enactment of a new privacy law which is quite comprehensive it has yet to be brought in force over the next few months but it all started off uh, with the judiciary claiming that uh, every citizen has a right to privacy as a fundamental right not just as a constitutional right but as a fundamental right as a part of right to life right so it sounds like the same issues are working their way through the the system in india let's talk about uh, ai which is on everybody's lips these days and generative ai are you seeing much uh, use of uh, generative AI in law practice in India yet? No, uh, I think everybody's playing with it. Firms like us and a few are kind of more progressive firms are having internal study groups to assess what the impact of it going to be. I am not aware of anyone actually having started using it for giving client advice. But sometimes it's a good cross check on um, on the advice that you give. So has it entered mainstream? Not yet. Will it enter mainstream? Definitely. Yeah. No. There. A few months ago, you probably read about a a lawyer in New York who used generative AI to help him write a brief. He filed the brief, and the program had hallucinated some cases that he cited that didn't exist. That is precisely the kind of risks that uh, exist in terms of um, you know the, the state of technology today. But I think it'll all get fixed. Yeah. Well, finally, Cyril, uh, as we wrap up here, I always uh, like to ask, when I talk to a, a leading lawyer such as yourself, I always like to ask, advice for young lawyers. What advice would you have for a young lawyer in India or elsewhere about how to achieve their goals in the legal profession, how to be successful? So I would have a, uh, thanks for that question, uh, but I would have a two-part answer. Uh, the first part of the answer is that at the end of the day, we are in a profession which has a long history and it's still old fashioned at its core so there is nothing that is going to take away from the fact that you need to put in the hours and the hard work and you need to apply yourself and you need to be passionate about the law uh, and you have to really love this and make a career out of it so i don't think anything has changed on that core for the last 100 years and i don't think that will ever will at the end of the day we are there to serve clients and to serve people the second part of my advice would be to be aware of changes that are taking place whether it's things like generative ai 
so introduce an element of modernity in the delivery tools but not the core of the spirit law and the spirit of the practice so be old fashioned at heart but you can be more modern in terms of the methodology uh, that you use so you have to find that right mix between being uh, traditional in your heart uh and respect the old fashioned values of uh, of the profession it's a noble profession but at the same time be quite savvy about how you implement stuff so that would be my advice and i practice what i preach well put cyril thank you very much so same question to you john uh, if i if i can take the liberty of well, what would be you are somebody of my my greatly yeah uh, well my my thoughts might not be as uh inspirational is yours because i mean i always say that look uh there really aren't einsteins uh in our world oh there may be but there aren't people who uh, you know practicing law at the highest level is i believe super labor intensive it requires a lot of effort it requires a lot of time and there aren't geniuses who are going to come along and change that and just be able to cut through things so you know we at the end of the day it always involves our practicing and getting great results for clients in difficult cases it requires hard work so it requires a commitment it requires a commitment to getting the best possible result and frankly in the litigation world it requires a commitment to winning i mean you can't be comfortable with losing so that's one thing and the the other thing i would say is you have to be reliable you have to be ultimately reliable you know taxi drivers can make mistakes dentists can make mistakes those can be painful <laughs> but uh you know people in other professions or lines of work or employment can make mistakes we learn to live with that people come to lawyers because they want they want the foolproof answers they want protection and we have to stand between our clients and trouble we have to be reliable and the whole team has to re- be reliable down to the most junior associate look i can't read all the cases i need to rely on what the junior person tells me a case stands for or what the testimony was i'm not going to be able to read all that so i have to take it as a given that what they're telling me i can rely on so those are the two things i say you know you need to be prepared to work hard and you need to be reliable to the nth degree no i fully agree with you and i can i can completely relate to it i would add one more and i think both of us in a way personified that in these present times you also need to have a global outlook uh, especially as uh, you're practicing at the highest end of the profession you can't be narrow and siloed in a particular market you need to have a global perspective on everything yeah i mean even the kind of questions you asked me on so many things they respect they they kind of uh, are based on a global mindset so i think at least for commercial lawyers uh we do everybody needs to have a global mindset right we're all facing the same problems yes right. so thank you very much cyril it's been a pleasure speaking with you we've been speaking with cyril shroff of the cam law firm he's based in mumbai we appreciate your being with us today cyril thank you john it's been a real pleasure And this is John Quinn. And this has been Law Disrupted. <laughs>